0: Stefan, good morning, South kids. You are now dismissed. You can go and uh, enjoy kids' church. I'm thankful for the volunteers that make that happen every week. Um, you're wonderful. I just want to uh, second what Stefan said and give you a warm welcome if this is your first time, or maybe this is just your second or third time. We love having visitors, and uh, make sure you connect with the Connect Desk people there. They would love to help you answer any questions you might have, and you'll get a a smart welcome pack as well Tells you a bit more about the church, Um, but uh, we're delighted that you are here. We've got a couple of church family things to do just before I jump into what I'm going to talk about this morning. First of all, Colleen and Brad, you're off to Thailand on Friday, is that right? On Friday, uh, and you'll be away for a month in India, is that correct? Yeah. Say again? Primarily. Primarily. Okay. So they're going to visit Bonnie as well, who's a missionary in Thailand. So I thought it would be good for us to pray for Brad and Colleen as they go, and they're away for a month, and, um, and it's going to be full on, lots of traveling, and having been to India, there's lots of, uh, of sitting and, and, and just waiting in different various forms of transport, but we just want them to go with our love and care. So guys, why don't you come up, and maybe a few people could come and just pray with them, and I'll pray Rather than maybe we'll just do it here, rather than squidging onto the stage and pray for, yeah, let's pray for these two good people. Father, we uh, we thank you that we can uh, come to you, Lord, and ask a blessing upon people who we love and we care for and we want the best for. Lord, we are grateful for Brad and Colleen as they go. To, uh, to Thailand and to India, Lord, to visit missionaries and the work at, uh, the, uh, at the Child of Mine orphanages. Father, I pray they will go with our blessing, that, Lord, we send them in the name of Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that they will go with strength and with peace. And, Lord, just with the knowledge that you go with them. Father, I pray that they would go with a distinct word from you. Uh, Lord, a word of encouragement for Bonnie and for the staff at the the orphanages and everybody they come into contact with. Lord, I pray you would charge them up and fill them up with everything that they need, Lord, and sustain them over the next month. Father, we pray that this will not be a tiring trip. Uh, spiritually. Lord, I pray that it would be something they come back just full of energy, Lord, because they've seen what you do and how good you are. So Father, we pray a blessing on them. We love them. And Father, I pray that uh, you would bring them back safely. And, uh, and thank you, God, for this opportunity for them. In your good and precious name, Jesus. Amen. 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 Okay, the, um, the other thing that I want to point out to you, hopefully the, uh, the welcome team gave you one of these as you came in. This is a new uh, program that I'm in the process of writing right now very hurriedly um, called Life Tracks. Here's what this is about. A few months ago, I preached two or three sermons about the call to be, the call to do, and the call to go. Um, That we've all been called to be like Jesus and to have the same character that Jesus shows in the Scripture. We've all been called to do something specific. We've all been wired in a particular way, and we've all been called to go. And so Life Tracks is all about you jumping into what that call is for you. It goes from, Life Track 1 is all about how do you develop the call to be? How do you become more like Jesus? How do you read the Bible? How, how do you pray effectively? How do you hear the voice of God through the Bible? And Life Track 2 is where we get into the gifts and strengths. And I'm excited because Wendy and Grant are going uh, to be working through that with us. Where we'll do some really quite in-depth gift and strength analysis. So you will know what it is that you, uh, you've, you're gifted at. And trust me, I've done this. And it's it's powerful. It's really, really good stuff. So we're really excited about Wendy and Grant jumping in on there. And then live track three is the so what. Now that we know these two things, what now? And how do we share the gospel? How do we how do we actually live this out? I trust me, I know I haven't written it yet, but I'm just believing it's gonna be good. Okay? But I, I'm working on live track one and I'm just I'm just I think this is something that we should do as a church. So um, come along, if nothing else, just to giggle at at whether or not I'm right or wrong. Um, But sign up for this. It's going to be good. And I promise you that at the end of it, you'll be very, very glad that you did. And my hope and prayer is that everybody you call South Home will end up doing the live track. So I'm hoping we'll do this a couple of times a year. Um, So you can pick up one of these, take it with you. It gives you instructions there as to how you sign up. And the dates, it starts October 9th, which is a week on Thursday, so um, about eight of you have already signed up, so good for you. We know that you are gifted in administration already, and you are keen, and uh, love that, excellent. Straight after the service this morning, we do, about 12 o'clock, we have the members class, uh, which will be about an hour long, and uh, around about 40 people have signed up for membership so far, and we're grateful. And I know there's about 40 more who keep on saying, it's on my kitchen counter, I'm bringing it in. So um, you, can, you can fill it out today and come to the class. It's, uh, it's happening straight after the service at 12 o'clock. All right, let's jump into what we've been looking at. Um, if you have a Bible, then you can turn to Exodus, uh, right at the beginning of the book. There, Exodus chapter 20, and uh, then we're also going to be looking at Colossians. But the Scriptures appear behind me as well as I preach, and you can go onto U Version. And I believe that thanks to Drake, we've been giving out some Bible notes as well because the photocopier was particularly demon possessed this morning. But Drake managed to figure it out and print off. So thanks for Drake. Um, Let's read Exodus 20, verse 4 to 5, first of all. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And then in Colossians 1, verse 15, it says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Last week, we started the Ten Commandments. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at why we need to study the Ten Commandments. What has this got to do with us as, as a culture, never mind if you're a Christian or not, or if you're, you're a skeptic or not, the Ten Commandments actually speak about absolute truth. There's a right and a wrong. And, and our culture feels uncomfortable with that because they enjoy saying things like, well, if it feels good for you, then you should do it. Or if it's, you know, if it feels right, go for it. And, you know, that gets us into some trouble and we can see the result of that in our world Today, last week, we jumped into the most important commandment, which is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods beside me. And what we did is we dug into why that was the case, that we all have some kind of God, small g, in our life, something that we're serving. It could be money. It could be career. It could be your children. It could be something that is actually good that has become ultimate to you. Something that you now is enslaving you that you have to serve this. Through fear, if you don't, then something bad will happen. That's exactly like the Israelites and the Egyptians. Let's take money, for example. Unless we work hard and devote hours and hours and hours on building our investment portfolios, then something bad will happen. So we serve this God of money so that we can avoid the pain that might come from not serving it. It's exactly the same as it was with the Egyptians and with the Israelites. And I said to you, well, you know what? That will get us into some trouble because what we serve will always fail us unless it's God. Some people serve the body, the physique, the looks. You can tell by a quick glance at me that's not the case for me. But people devote hours and hours to the gym, believing that they will be able to push off death. They're serving their body." And I said to you, you know, no matter how hard you run on that treadmill, you cannot treadmill your way into forgiveness. You cannot treadmill your way into peace. It always will fail you. And then I was actually quite surprised at how often this has come back to me this week, that if we make God number one, then a rock is just a rock. Because what I said was, is the Israelites actually looked at everything through fear. A rock or a storm or, or a weather system or somebody else, a neighbor. They were fearful all the time. They felt they were in danger. And we feel the same. We fear things in our lives. You make God number one, then a rock just becomes a rock. We don't need to be afraid of it. Then somebody insulting us is just an insult because, you know what? The most important thing is, is we serve God. As my daughter found out last week, she said, you know what, Dad? A rock is just a rock, but also a finger is just a finger. (laughs) Apparently, she was part of a march that was going on for the environment, and they were getting plenty of fingers. And She said, you know, a finger is just a finger. I don't need to take that on because the most important thing to me is God. Somebody being promoted over you is just somebody being promoted over you. It doesn't matter if your number one is God and not your job. I talked about how we hold things that are good in our hands. Let's say children. They're good. They're wonderful. I have four of them. I recommend them. They're wonderful. But the second that we make them ultimate and we serve them and we start getting anxious and worried and concerned and stressed, it's like we close our fist around them and that which is negotiable becomes a non-negotiable And we say, God, you can have anything you want, but don't don't have anything to do with this. And you can put whatever you want in that closed fist. And what we do is we have an open hand on God and make him negotiable. We pick him up and drop him rather than God being on non-negotiable closed fist and our lives being an open hand towards God. But for those of you who are smart, I left you hanging. How? How do we do that? How do we... Close our fist around God. How do we make God our number one priority? How do we live life with such a peace that we can hold things in life with an open hand, whether it be health or finances or children or career or whatever it might be, we can hold it with an open hand. How do we do that? That's this week, the second commandment. The first commandment is who should we worship? The second commandment is how should we worship God? Around about 20 years ago, Actually, more than that, Sarah and I were married, and, and uh, we started thinking about children. And we had this perfect image in our minds as to what parenthood was going to be like. You know the kind of images that you see of, of good-looking families running down the beach barefoot in their autumn sweaters with big, gleary smiles on their faces, with perfect hair, their children clean and obedient in each hand? That was going to be us. We were going to be those parents. We were going to be the parents that sit next to a roaring fire with our children obediently sat there. We were playing Monopoly and we're just having good family time and it's a beautiful scene. We were going to be the cool parents. We were going to make s'mores on the beach with the setting sun. Just, it was going to be perfect. I was thinking about this as I was dry, uh, dry heaving in the corner of my house after putting my hand down the side of the couch looking for the remote control and put it in something brown and sticky and I thought, what happened to those expectations of perfect parenthood? Then I started thinking about the times that, those perfect moments when my 18-month-old son went upstairs and peed in the corner of his bedroom just because he could. Mere feet away from the washroom because he was annoyed at us. That time when my children are in diapers and I, and I saw a brown Malteser on the floor and got excited because I like Maltesers. <laughs> found out that it's not only the little brown round things that you find around your house when you have children. Where were those perfect moments? I pick up a a mug off the couch, only to find that it's actually stuck on the couch. That was my 17-year-old daughter just a few weeks ago. Thank you, Zoe, wherever you are. Kind of, hang on a second. And you look at your friends who haven't got kids having dates with big smiles on their faces, going to restaurants that you can't go to anymore, hot air balloons down Bernard Avenue, sipping champagne and, you know, eating chunks of passion fruit while I'm at home scraping week old Weetabix off the top of my tabletop. And I'm thinking, what happened to that perfect expectation I had about parenthood? In fact, I could even say about marriage. I love my wife. I love the fact that she laughed so deliriously when she handed me a large jug, which I thought was full of orange juice, but actually turned out to be old chip oil and started chugging it back. (laughs) She didn't do it on purpose, but she laughed on purpose, friends. She really did. We have these expectations in life or on people. And trust me, you know, I, I actually said to my son the other day, I said, you know, if I could have a wish, after I'd wished for more wishes, because that's the real wish that you should have first, right? I want more wishes. Um, would be that I'd actually take 10 years, uh, I'd make each of my kids 10 years younger. I'd, I'd want to do it all over again. You know, I have a 20-year-old, almost 18, 15-year-old, and a 9-year-old. I wouldn't take 10 years off Jack, because that would mean he wouldn't exist. So, it will just say 8 <laughs> years off Jack. I'd do it all over again. Because even though I had expectations of being the cool parent, I would not change a thing. I would not change a thing about the way that we have enjoyed our kids. My expectation was different from the reality, and there were times it was difficult. It was times that it was hard to adjust. It was hard to to have a screaming baby or or a situation in your family that involved your kids. It was difficult. I wouldn't change it, but it wasn't my expectation. You see, what we need is we need an injection of truth in order to have the right expectations. We need people to come alongside and go, you know what, parenting isn't quite like you think it might be. It's brilliant, but it's not quite like that. You need somebody to come alongside you and say, you know what, marriage isn't quite the way that you think it's going to be. I encourage young people, get to know the person before you date them. And then once you date them, that's when the experiment starts. Put yourself into situations that are sometimes stressful. Minister together. What, do, what are they like with money? What are they like when they're angry? What makes them angry? What makes them frustrated? Because here's what happens when you get married. And those of you who are married will say a big amen if you were Pentecostal enough. You'd say, what happens? Whatever issues are before marriage, you put them through marriage, they amp up, don't they? Amen. <laughs> hey. Thank you, Brad. Colleen just went... <laughs> it is going to be a long month, yeah. You need a good perspective of what marriage is like from people who have been there, people who have been married a long time, people who have been through it. I love it when I say, you know, I'm, I've, I've been married 20, 21 years, and I get a round of applause. I'm like, that's what it should be like, right? Get a good idea of the truth. What is the person really like? Because there will be times when you realize they are not who you thought they were. Projecting what we want onto something that isn't actually the way it is gets us into trouble projecting what we want on people rather than loving them for who they actually are. We have expectations of a situation, an expectation of a person, an expectation of an experience. And then we get indignant and annoyed when it's not the way we think it should be. We need to learn the truth. We need to learn to love the person as they are. But here's what we do, friends, and I'm very serious about this, and this is what this commandment is about is we look at God and we project expectations and what we believe God is like onto him that aren't true. And then we get annoyed when he doesn't fulfill those expectations. So my first point today is God is the invisible made visible in Jesus. God is the invisible made visible in Jesus. There's a story, I'm not sure whether it's true, but that won't stop me saying it anyway, of a little girl in kindergarten who was doing a drawing. And the kindergarten teacher came up behind her and went, Oh, that's a lovely drawing. What is it? And she said, It's a drawing of God. And the kindergarten teacher says, Well, I don't think we know what God looks like. And she said, Well, you will in a minute. (laughs) We don't know what God looks like. You know, you've seen the pictures of a a guy on a on a maybe on a kind of a throne with a big beard and a crook. Where does that come from? We imagine God to be what we want him to be, positive or negative. Who you perceive God to be right now sat in this church today in your life. Who you perceive God to be will determine how you worship him and will actually. Direct your life. And I'm going to show you that this morning. What you believe God to be will determine and direct your life, either towards destruction, and I'm going to show you why, or towards living out the design that God intended for you and for me. Our expectations on God, we need to be very, very careful of. The first commandment says this, you must not worship other gods than the true God, other than the true God. The second commandment says this, you must not imagine God to be what you prefer him to be, but you must worship him as he reveals himself to be. So the first commandment is against idolatry, setting up idols in our lives. The second commandment is against heresy, doctrines, trying to make God into something that he's not, graven images Graven image in this context means a human-made image of God, whether, listen, whether physical or mental. It's a human-made image of God, physical or mental. And God says, you do not make graven images. You do not have images that are incorrect in your life of me. In Colossians 1 verse 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In this verse, we have everything that we need to know about the second commandment. It's first of all, absolutely forbidden in the Bible to create images of God to worship. You cannot get around it. You have to do theological gymnastics to make the Bible say that it's okay for us to worship something as a representation of God. And the second thing is that God, knowing that we needed an image to worship, gave us Jesus. Because this is what Colossians is talking about. He's saying Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Look, you can't see God. You cannot see him. He's invisible. But if you want to know what he looks like, look to Jesus. He's, he is the one you look to. He is the image that you should worship. Because God knows us as, as humans that we need some kind of representation, not some ethereal idea. We need, an, what is it that we're worshiping? Look to Jesus. So let's break this apart a little bit. So the second point is this. No created images of God for worship. It's really clear. No created images of God for worship. The New Testament, Old Testament is clear. Deuteronomy 4, verse 12 to 16. Deuteronomy 4 breaks apart the commandments a little bit more and gives you some more detail. It says this, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on that day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. God's saying this. He says, listen. I spoke to you out of the fire. You never saw what I looked like. All you heard was a voice. And the reason that is because I don't want you to go and make an image that is incorrect. Why not? Why shouldn't we have an image of what we think God rep- looks like right on the stage here? Because they will always, always fail. Physical representations of God always fail. Think about the time when Aaron made a golden calf and he put it in front of the Israelites and he said, Worship this. This is your God. And God is furious and Moses is furious. One of my favorite scriptures. I've said it many times because I just love this scripture. That Moses is so mad that he grinds the golden calf up into powder and makes the Israelites drink it. And I've said it before. This is a great disciplinary method for your kids. If they, if they disobey you, grind, get that computer, grind it up, make them drink it. <laughs> I'm joking. Don't quote me. Pastor Glenn said it was fine. No, I'm kidding. But this is God's vehemence against this image. Why? Well, you might say, well, because God's not a calf. And you would be right. But it's not so much what they made, it's what they didn't make. It's not so much what the calf represents. Maybe it's It's strength maybe or provision and, you know, God is a strong God and He provides and so the calf might represent that. It's what the calf doesn't tell you about God. Does the calf show you God's love, God's purity, God's care, God's justice? It fails. This is why the Bible says do not make any images to worship because they will always fail. They always lack the fullness of God. Interestingly, and just as an aside, as good Christians often do, we take a commandment and then we make it bigger to suit ourselves. The Bible doesn't say that we're not to make images of worship. In fact, God Himself is a great artist. You look at the the building of the temple, it is filled with art. This is why we do what we do. I am so grateful to the South Art Project for all the art in there. God is an artist. Look at creation. Look at the sunsets. It's like God getting a brush and just brushing it. It's beautiful. The Bible does not say that art is wrong. It says don't worship it. Don't worship it. See, there's no clear picture of what Jesus looks like in the Scriptures. There's no description of what Paul looks like. I I grew up reading children's Bibles that had Jesus as this pale, blue-eyed, Long, beautiful long blonde hair. My goodness. He knew how to look after himself, Jesus. Wonderfully shaven. Kind of weak looking, a bit feeble. Looks like he could, you know, he wouldn't be very good at anything physical. He was a, quite frankly, he looked like he was a beautiful man. And it built up an image inside of me. Listen, I, joking aside, I'm serious. I grew up up until my late teens thinking that Jesus was a victim. Because of the way he looked in my children's Bible. Believing that Jesus was white. He was a Jew. Believing he had blonde hair. Not many Jewish people had blonde hair. Blue eyes. Mm-mm. He wouldn't have been weak. He was a construction worker. Have you shaken hands with a construction worker recently? Go and shake hands with Drake. Where are you, Drake? He's nothing soft and gentle and about Drake. Where are you, Drake? There he is. I mean, we love you, mate, but you're not soft and gentle, are you? That's what Jesus wouldn't be. He wouldn't have been soft and timid. Hi, my name's Jesus, and I just wonder where I could tell you a bit about God. No. This is the guy who thundered in the temple, kicking over tables. He made a whip. I've said before, anyone who can clear out a busy shopping area just by your mere presence is not some timid, weak, beautiful man. (laughs) I saw him as loving but not strong, powerless. That is not a biblical view of Jesus, but it's a good representation of how we can look at images and come to conclusions by what we see. So you might say, okay, Glenn, I'm okay on this one because I haven't got any pictures of Jesus at home. The worst picture of Jesus I've seen was one in our first rental house that we, that we rented. And this lovely lady had a picture of Jesus, blonde hair, blue eyes, the whole thing, white robe, blue sash, lovely. Like just, you know, very hipster, very nice, perfectly manicured beard, sat under a tree with birds all over him. <laughs> with this kind of angelic look on his face. Like we all know, we'd be all going, covered in bird poo. That's what would actually be happening. But I'm looking at this going, why? Why do we do that to our God? And God thunders against it. You do not do this. You do not make images to worship. Does that mean all pictures of Jesus are wrong? Yes, if you worship them. Yes, if you draw conclusions for what God is like by the image. But it actually means something else as well. And this is where it really hits home for you and me. The same word image, it's exactly the same word as imagine. God is saying this, you shall not imagine me. Truth must regulate what we imagine God to be. Be very careful if somebody says this to you. I think God is fill in the blank. I will lovingly and pastorally say this to you. I don't care what you think God is. I care about what God actually is according to the word of God. We get into trouble when we start interpreting what we think God is like by our limited imaginations. Because you might have had a really rubbish relationship with your dad. Maybe he was abusive. Maybe he just was detached. Maybe he was uninterested. Maybe he just seems to be angry all the time. And what we do is we project that image upon God and it's almost like we worship it. We make determinations about our expectations on God. So God is frowning all the time. Maybe God is just like big Uncle Buck in the sky giving you stuff like Santa and so he's just happy all the time. Maybe he's beating you and abusing you like your father did to you. Maybe that's what you think about God. Maybe you just think he's grumpy all the time. Maybe he's always angry. Or maybe he's just so gentle like the images that I described to you of Jesus. Here's the danger that God warns us against in the second commandment. Do not make God who you want him to be because it suits you. Maybe from your experience. Be very careful if somebody says, well, from my experience, this is what I think about God. I'm not interested in your experience. No, that's not right. I am interested in your experience, but we're not going to make it absolute truth. Maybe from images or maybe from lectures, from university, you've had a very smart professor rail against Christianity. And so therefore you have this image of what Christians are like and what God is like and you're making that truth. You're worshipping a graven image. Maybe from your parents, maybe from tradition, you have the wrong image of God. You think God is this way, so therefore he thinks this way. No, no, no. We need to know the truth. Let me give you an example of how we put unfair expectations on, on people and upon God. Um, Lyndon, can I borrow you for a second? You woke up then, didn't you? <laughs> Lyndon is a very, very good bass player. Lyndon, come on up here. Sorry. Actually, I'm not really. This is going to be fun. (laughs) So, Lyndon is a very good bass player. But if I ask Lyndon, can we just turn one of these on? Come up here, Lyndon. Can we have this on, please? There you go. So, if you can just get singing that. Knock it out me. <laughs> no, I I, I really no, do because we no, need to no. sing it with you, and, and so you can't sing. But I think you can sing, so you should sing. Come oh. on, sing. I just won't. <laughs> you just won't. I just won't. We'll do it together. Okay. It'll be like, like the go. Bee Gees. You go. You go. You go. be. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know what that song is. I th- no. Okay. Let's not. Because yeah. they don't no, deserve it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Fair enough. Can I sit down? You can. I was really hoping you'd give it a go. All right, Scott. No, I'm. No. Let's do it. Or oh, Pete Hannenberg, what do you do? No, no, okay. Here's my point he is very good at playing the bass. He loves it. He, he doesn't have that typical bass face that people have when they're playing bass. It's just like they look miserable. You notice that with bass players. He kind of really gets into it. You want to watch him. I, I love it. I like watching Lyndon as he's playing the bass. He's good at it. It's what he does. It's part of who he is. He's also gifted in lots of other areas. Now, I might have an expectation on Lyndon and call him up one week and go, Lyndon, I need you to sing at the church. But Glenn, I don't sing. I don't care what you do or don't do. This is what I think you should be able to do. You should sing. Now, I get from a position of control, because I'm coming from what I think is true, is unfair on Lyndon, and quite frankly, apparently, Lyndon tells me, unfair on you as well, because he perhaps isn't as good (laughs) singer as I think he might be. You see, it comes from placing myself at center as being right, and remember, that's what our culture tells you all the time. You're right. What you think is right. You know, even if I disagree with it, what you think is right, you go ahead, that's good. And so it comes from us placing ourselves in the center and instead of linden, and we do it on our wives or on our husbands or on friends, we have unfair expectations because we believe they should be a certain way and then we get annoyed when they're not. Instead of actually finding out who they actually are and loving them for what they are, we do the same with God. God is very, 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 very perfectly good at what the Bible says God is good at. He is very, very perfectly against what the Bible says he is against. This is the revealed description of God. Now, we can come to God and go, "Mm." -mm. you might say that, but here's how I view you. Without actually spending the time finding out what God actually says about himself, we just jump to conclusions. This is very, very dangerous. Maybe some of you think Christianity is something that it's not actually, because you've turned on the TV, and to my shame, there have been Christians in the world who have pulled and blasphemed. Christianity by their actions and what they have done or said or money they've asked for and they claim Christianity and then live against it. And you watch that and go, all Christians are like that. Can I say we do exactly the same thing with other religions in the world, especially Islam? Well, all Islamic people are evil. You know what? The same thing could be said about us. In fact, I think they say, ISIS especially say that about North Americans. All of them, evil. And we make these sweeping statements based on what we think is right. And then we make it truth. And it's ridiculous. Now, I would stand and say there are massive areas of differences between Islam and Christianity. But I would love to sit down and engage in conversation lovingly, caringly, knowing, can I say there's a lot of Islamic people who are nice and a lot of Christians I know. So let's be careful if you come to Christianity with a view that is incorrect because you've never actually taken the time to get to know the truth. Will the truth about God, will the truth about Christianity regulate your thoughts or will your thoughts shape the truth? Will the truth about Christianity, will the truth about Jesus, maybe you're here this morning and you don't know much about Jesus, be very careful about what conclusions you draw about Jesus and the cross and about Christians and about church, find out, consider. Because when the challenge comes, your thoughts about God will fail you if they're incorrect. Let's say sickness hits your family. If you believe God is just there like Carson the butler to do whatever you want him to do, you're going to get really angry with God when sickness comes to your family or whether job loss comes to your family or some crisis comes to your family because you don't have a real understanding of who God is. You've just made it up yourself. The most dangerous, and please listen to this, is people's views about how they get to heaven is wrong. Ironically, they start at the Bible and then twist it in the way that they feel fits. And it's unbiblical. We as humans are separated from God because of the sin that we willingly commit. This separation is deep and strong enough that would cause us to ultimately find ourselves in hell. what the Bible says. So if we're going to start with the Bible, let's carry on with what the Bible says. We're going to start with, well, the Bible says that God sends people who are good to heaven. Okay, well, if you're going to quote the Bible, let's actually read what it says. And here's what it says. We are separated from God. Sin separates us. And we're all destined because we're all ultimately selfish. And we have challenges and we have shame that separate us from God. Ultimately, that leads to death, both physically and also spiritually. Have you met somebody whose life has gone off? So what else does the Bible say? But God, in His love, in His mercy, in His joy, in His passion for you, sent His Son Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, to come and live the life that you and I are incapable of living and then died the death that you and I actually deserve Because of our sin, He died on the cross. Thereby making it possible for all those who believe in Him to come to know Him and to actually live life the way it was meant to be intended and get to heaven. That's the truth. Oh, but I don't like that. Okay. But that's what the Bible says. You started with the Bible. Let's finish with the Bible. That's what the Bible says. No, I don't like that because, Glenn, you're telling me that I have sin in my life and I do stuff, st- stuff wrong. Yes. How do I know that? Because you're no different from me. And I have sin in my life and I have stuff that goes wrong all the time. Happened this morning. I screw up all the time. I'm good at it. I should get one of those gold ribbons from when you ran in the race when you were a kid. You know, at sports day. For screwing up, that's me. Village idiot. But because of that, I can be confident that if God decided that my life was to come to an end in whatever way, tomorrow, next week, next year, or when I'm 90, 12 years old, that's what I'm praying for. I know that my family are going to be okay. I know that they're going to be looked after because the Bible says that God is in control and God loves my kids more than I do. That blows my mind. That's the truth. That I would be in heaven, worshiping him for the rest of your life. Well, Glenn, that's very, very arrogant of you to say that. Maybe. But if you're going to start with the Bible, let's finish with the Bible, and that's what the Bible says. So with a view of salvation, if you don't know Jesus this morning, if you have a view of what God is like, and it does not include that description I just gave you, then you need to get to the Bible. You need to read. You need to talk to people. You need to get some prayer. You need, to, you need to dig into this and find out the truth. Because thirdly, knowing we needed an image, God gave us Jesus. We want as humans to relate to God personally. So he gave us his son, Jesus. Jesus. How do we get the right image of who God is? How do we find out who God is? How do we find out how he responds and what he sounds like and what he does and how he reacts and what he thinks about racism and what he thinks about um, uh, um, sexism and what does he think about sex? What does he think about money? What does he think about heaven? What does he think about hell? What does he think about marriage? What does he think about adultery? What does he think about swearing? All these things that we want to find out that God says are in the first four books of the New Testament. Look to Jesus. One of the uh, more, and I I did consider whether to share this story or not. And so, um, and the reason I decided to is because I actually found out that there was a, a website where the Brits are as guilty as the Americans at this. Now you're really interested. It's what the Americans think about Canada. Now being a Canadian now, getting my citizenship. There are some funny things about what the Americans and indeed the world think about Canada that actually we're not all maple syrup-soaked bears drinking bad beer in igloos, which is what a lot of Americans thought. I, I actually went to Florida for a conference several years ago, and, and, I, and somebody asked me who was from Florida where I came from, and I said, oh, I come from Vancouver, because that's where I lived at the time, and they were like, oh, really? Do they play outdoor sports there? Yes, they do. Really, does it ever warm up enough? yeah, really? I said, can you just describe to me what you think Vancouver's like? He described this kind of wilderness abyss of ice and glaciers and like and and you know that. There was a a tweet that went around a week or so ago that, uh, that we were giggling at in the Scottish referendum because apparently somebody tweeted, and this is true, that they were hoping that the Canadians wouldn't try and do the same thing and separate themselves from America. That just made me shake my head. But then I think people do that with the Brits. They think we all sound like Harry Potter. And everything looks like, you know, like, like a Harry Potter movie. It doesn't. Well, not at least where I come from. Maybe in South Wales or somewhere. But not, not where I'm from. We have this idea. And we base truth on it. Have this idea of what God is like. Jesus gives you a vivid picture of who God is. So, how do you close your fist? Sorry, open your fist on those things that are not as important as God. How do you close your fist on God? It's so simple, friends. If you know Jesus this morning, you're a Christian and you know it, but you're struggling to keep an open hand on the things that you know are unimportant compared to God. How do you keep a closed hand? You make sure you have the right image of God. And what you do is you look and you find where you struggle the most in life. This You identify what wrong image that you have of God that results in that. And I'll give you an example in a second. And you put Jesus in its place. And it's in your notes. I'll give you an example. If you're worrying, and I'm good at this. If we're worrying about our future then you have the wrong image of God. You have a graven image. You are breaking the second commandment because if we truly had a clear view of who God is, then we would not be worried about the future because we would know he holds the future in his hands. That we are not wiser than he is. He is in control. And so worry and anxiety is something that I have in my hand. I hold very closely. How do I open my hand on worry and anxiety and close my hand on God? I get a good view of the image of God that tells me he's in control. He loves my kids more than I do. He loves me. He knows the future. He says he knows the best for me. And even though it might be hurtful in the short term, in the long run, it's going to be the best. Why worry? Look to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he's kneeling, wrestling with God, saying, "God, if there's any other way that I can avoid the cross, what can it be?" He's wrestling. He's worried. He knows what it's going to mean. He knows the pain. He knows not only the shame that that cross brings, but he knows that he's going to have to carry every sin of yours and mine and every other person who believes in him. It's going to hang on him, and it is going to be cosmically torturous he's like, God, is there any other way but not my will but your will? You see, he gets a good image of God and says, okay, God, you're in control. Father, you're in control. Take another example, temptation. If you're struggling with constantly being tempted towards something that you know is incorrect or ungodly or bad for you, maybe it's switching the computer on and looking at something you shouldn't be looking at. Maybe you're tempted to go after a guy or after a girl that you know you shouldn't be. Maybe you're tempted to force something to happen that you know you shouldn't be. Maybe you're tempted to be angry or tempted to go somewhere or be something, whatever it might be. The Bible does not say temptation is wrong. It says that as actually being led away and falling for that temptation is a sin. So how do we open our hand upon that thing, whatever it might be, close our hand on God, you get an image of Jesus. And I want this to appear on the screen, Luke, because this is very important. You fill your mind with who Jesus is and you will not disobey. You fill your mind with the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will not be looking at that porn. You fill your mind with the cross of Jesus Christ and why he died, you would not be chasing after non-Christian guys or non-Christian girls or Christian guys or Christian girls that aren't right for you. You fill your mind with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's easy to keep an open hand on the things that we are tempted with. Because what you'll see there is a face of a God who loves you, cares for you, is passionate about you, is merciful and kind and says, I died. So that doesn't have to be part of your life anymore. But what we do is we fill our mind with everything that kind of leans towards that issue. We, keep, we don't actually maybe fall for the actual temptation, but we skirt around it. So we don't actually, you know, we don't actually go all the way through with the actual temptation, but we get really close. You know, maybe you do look at stuff that is inappropriate on the computer, so you don't actually go all the way, but you go on websites that are really quite close. So you're filling your mind, maybe you're watching programs or listening to music or going on magazines or whatever it might be that get you on that side of your thinking rather than on that side of your thinking that comes from immersing yourself in the word of God. And immersing yourself in biblical community and immersing yourself in worship and focusing your mind on that which is good and noble and pure and excellent. Because the more you do that, you will not be able to close your fist upon that. I promise you. If you read the Gospels thoroughly, you'll find that your impatience is not godly because God is a patient God. If you're angry all the time, it's because you don't see the mercy of God. If you are lacking self-control, it's because you have not seeing the goodness of God. You're not looking at His face. Friends, Christians or none, seekers or being in church for years, that is why I thunder every week about reading this book. I think most, if not all, of our struggles in life would be solved if we would all dedicate ourselves to reading this and considering and praying it through on a daily basis. But pastor, you don't understand. No, I do understand. Do you read your Bible? Are you in a community group? Are you studying what God actually says about himself? We're gonna worship in a minute. Worship gives us an image of God. We can focus our mind on something that is good and godly. As part of the life tracks, we're going to actually be talking about the place that the Bible has in our lives. I encourage you to sign up for that. If you are struggling in reading your Bible, sign up for life tracks. There are good, godly people around you who will help you and give you advice. Let's find out who God actually says about himself. My challenge to you, church, and I've been your pastor long enough now, where you know my love and heart is towards you. But my challenge to you, church, if you call south your home, or if you are a Christian, do you spend time in the word of God getting to know him? Do you like Paul when he said that I might know him and the power of his resurrection? If you don't know Jesus this morning, or you, you're not sure, are you actually putting time in to find out? We want to be a church where you will experience and engage and be equipped and and express your gifts and your strengths. That's what we want to be as a church. This is a great place to find more about God, a loving family who has been where you've been. But resist making determinations about who God is based on your past experience. My prayer is that we would stop making God into our image, in our own mind, So he can make us like his image in his mind. That would be my goal. That would be my prayer. Let's pray. Dear Lord. God, I do not stand before you thinking that I am a man who does not need to know you more somebody who's sorted out all issues and challenges Lord I I know who I am and I know how broken I am and how I struggle and I believe the strength Lord in, in recognizing that because Lord I know that, that draws me to you. God, I pray that everyone in this room right now will get a correct image of who you are, that you are a loving God. You're a caring God. You're a patient God. You're a merciful God. One who cares about our children and our grandchildren and our brothers and sisters. And Holy Spirit, I would ask that for any who don't know you in this room, that right now, maybe they're for the first time in a long time just saying, Lord, God, help me. Forgive me for all those things I know I've done wrong. Give me the right image of you, God. And Father, I pray That it would be burned into our spirit and into our minds and into our souls, that we would immerse ourselves in your word, in biblical solid community, so that we might know you. And Lord, I pray, even as we worship now, that we would get a glimpse of who you are, because Lord, I know that you will never fail us. Thank you, Jesus. Just with your eyes closed, and we're going to worship in a second. I really want you to see this worship time as a response and an opportunity for you to see God for who He really is. Maybe an opportunity for you to pray and ask for forgiveness, knowing that He smiles and He cares and He's here. Thank you, Jesus.